If you've got a Bible, you want to open up to Genesis chapter 8. We're going to work with the whole chapter this morning. As you get yourself settled there, I want to make two sort of precursor statements. The first one is that in order to pick up what Genesis 8 is saying and how it's sort of knitting some things together here at the, or in the early chapters of Genesis, uh, things are going to have to get a little languagey at times. Uh, I promise not to drag that out. Uh, or beleaguer it, but the words matter here quite a bit. They, they matter all throughout Scripture. That's no different here in Genesis chapter 8. And so um, we're going to do enough with old languages to be able to catch that for ourselves this morning. The second precursor is that it's the bookends of this passage that sort of uh, grab the headlines, and, and that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. So Genesis 8 verse 1, God remembered Noah, then God does a bunch of, of stuff, and then at the end, Noah comes out, and we're told that he builds an altar, and he offers sacrifices, and he worships. And so, um, we're not going to glaze over the middle portion, but in terms of like the anchoring points this morning, it's the bookends, the beginning, and then at the end. So, if you've got Genesis 8 open there in front of you, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter. You can follow along or just listen. It says this. God remembered Noah, as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water began to subside. The sources of the watery depths and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky stopped. The water steadily receded on the earth, and by the end of 150 days, the water had decreased significantly. The ark came to rest in the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. The water continued to recede until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the mountaintops were visible. After 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent out a raven. It went back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see whether the, earth, or the water on the earth's surface had gone down. But the dove found no resting place for its foot. It returned to him in the ark because water covered the surface of the whole earth. He reached out and brought it into the ark to himself. So Noah waited seven more days and sent out the dove from the ark again. When the dove came to him at evening, there was a plucked olive leaf in its beak. So Noah knew that the water on the earth's surface had gone down. And after he had waited another seven days, he sent out the dove, but it did not return to him again. In the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the water that had covered the earth was dried up. Then Noah removed the ark's cover and saw that the surface of the ground was drying. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you, birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth, and they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah, along with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives came out. All the animals, all the creatures that crawl, and all the flying creatures, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark by families. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter and day and night will not cease. Let's pray. 
God, thanks for this morning and for your word. God, I pray that your spirit present here among us this morning would take the truth of your word, open our hearts and minds to see the truth of our and the wonder of the gospel, and then would your spirit grab hold of that and settle it in our hearts in exactly the way that you know we need. God, if that's encouragement and comfort, I pray that your spirit would work that in your people this morning. If it's challenge and conviction, I pray that your spirit would work that in your people this morning. If, like myself, I probably need some mixture of both, God, would your Holy Spirit work that in your people this morning? Would the result be lives that increasingly worship, obey, and model Jesus in the world? We pray this in his matchless name, amen. First three words of Genesis chapter eight. God remembered Noah. When we think of remembering, we think of like an intellectual, psychological, mental event. And the word for remember here in Hebrew is the word zakir. It does carry that connotation. So just factual remembrance. Patrick Mahomes is number 15. Denzel Washington is the coach in Remember the Titans. A mile is 5,280 feet. Like that kind of remembering. The word zakir is used for that kind of remembering all throughout the Bible. In fact, it's typically used in that way about people. So a, a fairly well-known example. In Genesis chapters 40 and 41, the story is focused on Joseph and he finds himself in prison. While Joseph is in prison, he interacts with two men, the Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and the Pharaoh's chief baker, and they both have dreams. And Joseph is able to interpret those dreams. And so he tells the cupbearer, in three days time, Pharaoh will lift your head and you will be restored to your position. Then he interprets the baker's dream and he says, In three days' time, Pharaoh will lift your head. And then there's a hyphen, and it says, but off of your shoulders. So the cupbearer is going to be restored to his position. The baker is going to meet his demise, all in three days' time. Three days pass. Those things play out. And before the cupbearer goes before Pharaoh, Joseph pleads with him, don't forget me when you're restored to your position. The cupbearer forgets. And a bunch of time passes. And sometime later, Pharaoh has a dream that no one can interpret. And it's like something goes off in the cupbearer's mind. And he says, ah, the cupbearer remembered Joseph. It's like a a factual thing. The cupbearer's not in a position to really do anything. But he's like, hey, there's a guy in the dungeon down there. He once interpreted a dream of mine. Maybe he could help you out. Zakir, he remembered. It's like factual recall. God's remembering here is different. In fact, when this is used about God, it's always structured in a certain way in the language where there's God remembered and then it's directly tied to a human object, typically. So there's a specific construction of the verb here. And when you see that construction, God remembered Noah. When the Bible talks about God's remembering, it's talking about his activity, He does something. It signifies him moving toward his people in covenant faithfulness. God remembering Noah here is not God up in heaven. There's water everywhere. And he's like, oh yeah, there's a guy in a boat. I hope he's well. 
That's not God remembering here. God remembering here is moving toward Noah and his family in covenant faithfulness. God remembers and it means that in his sovereign mind, it is time to move toward that person, in this case Noah, in covenant faithfulness according to his will to move forward his plans and his purposes. That's God remembered and a person or a group of people. We have the same understanding of memory or remembering in our language. It's just that it doesn't change the way that we use the word. So if you're trying to get everyone to church in the morning and you're running around the house trying to locate your car keys, and then while you're running around the downstairs, you remember that you left them upstairs. They're on your dresser for some reason. You don't think to yourself, they're on the dresser, and then keep running around the downstairs trying to find the keys. You're remembering creates action and you go upstairs and you grab the keys. It's that sort of remembering that God does when he remembers Noah. He remembers and he moves toward Noah and his family there in the ark in covenant faithfulness. God remembering a person happens throughout the Old Testament. In Genesis 30, 22, we're told that God remembers Rachel, one of Jacob's wives. And she has a son. The son that she has is Joseph. God's moving his will forward. He remembers Rachel and he acts. She conceives and has a son. That son is Joseph who's going to take the Israelites to Egypt. Then while they're in Egypt at the very beginning of the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 2, we're told that they're crying out in the midst of their slavery. That God hears them and he remembers his people Israel. That is going to launch the book of Exodus into all that God does in order to rescue Israel from slavery. It's not just that he says, oh yeah, I remember that Joseph got them to Egypt and they're in slavery. Hmm. Hmm. No, he moves toward them in covenant faithfulness. Leviticus 26 is all about covenant blessings that are Israel's. And God is speaking there, and it's full of all of these I will statements. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And numerous times throughout there, it's I will remember, I will remember, I will remember. And it's full of what he will do as a result of his remembering. It's action. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, we're introduced to a woman named Hannah. She's unable to have children. Her and her husband, we're told, are faithful to go and to worship the Lord by offering these sacrifices. And every time her husband goes, she goes. And every time he offers sacrifices, she offers sacrifices. And it happens year after year after year after year in the middle of Hannah not being able to have children. And in 1 Samuel 1, verse 11, she prays, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember Zachar and not forget me. She wants God to act. She doesn't want just like intellectual, psychological, mental memory that there's a woman down there named Hannah. She wants God to act in response to that. And so then in 1 Samuel 1, 19, we're told that the Lord remembered her. And what happens is that she conceives and she gives birth to a son named Samuel. God acts in covenant faithfulness to his people. Samuel is going to be the high priest when Saul and David are kings. It's going to be Samuel who anoints David as king. It's a significant moment in God's covenant relationship with his people. He remembers 
and he acts. One more, because there's a sense of this that runs through things in the New Testament and our understanding of God sending Jesus into the world. Now, the New Testament is in Greek. The Old Testament is in Hebrew, so it's not the same word. But in Genesis 4.4, we're told that when the time had come to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to rescue those under the law, redeem those under the law. When the time had come to completion, some translations say, in the fullness of time, what did God do? Zachared. He remembered. And he moved toward his people in covenant faithfulness, sending the Son into the world to redeem his people from sin. God remembered Noah. He acted. I want to make two quick notes here. It does not say that God remembered Noah's righteousness. It is not God remembered on behalf of something that Noah did. Take it in the other instances. It's not that God remembers on behalf of what Israel does while they're in their slavery in Egypt. It's not that God remembers on behalf of what Hannah does while she's crying out to him and pleading for a child. It's that God remembers on behalf of who he is. He is covenant faithful. So he will act according to his nature. And you want that to be the case because if God is only ever remembering his people on the basis of our faithfulness, he's probably not ever going to remember. Because the record of our faithfulness is not such that we could like rouse him into remembering us. He remembers on the basis of who he is. He has bound himself to his people in covenant promises and he remembers and he acts according to them in order to move his plans and purposes forward on behalf of his people. Second piece is this. Genesis 8.1. God remembered Noah and then there's an additional clause after that as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Just, it's worth briefly pointing out that the Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9 picture that we get of God's just judgment for sin and this shadowy picture of him redeeming and restoring his creation, that that includes more than humanity. It's expansive. The cosmic effects of sin were larger than humanity. It's not just that Adam and Eve ate the fruit and then sin came into humanity and that was the end of it. The picture in Genesis 3.15 is God pronounces his oracles or his judgments as a result of sin are expansive. They include creation. Cursed is the ground because of you. Romans tells us that all of creation groans waiting for its redemption and its restoration. So what will redemption and restoration be? It will go beyond humanity. There will be a new heaven and a new earth where sin is no longer present. And that new heaven and that new earth are not subject to the groaning of brokenness that all of the universe is. And you get a little shadowy picture of that as God remembers Noah and all of the animals that are present with him there inside the ark. Everything that sin has made wrong on like cosmic scale Jesus is going to put right when he returns. Yes. I want to stop here. Normally what we would do is we would just sort of keep plowing our way through Genesis chapter 8 and then at the very end we would circle back around to apply this. But this nugget here of God remembering his people in act covenant faithfulness It could be that for any number of people in the room this morning or listening on podcast or watching online, that 
th- that little piece is the thing that your heart like needs the most this morning. And so I want to be like, I want to be pretty direct at this point with the application here and not just blow by it. God has been faithful to you, brother or sister in Christ, in Jesus. And he will never forget you. There's a a psalm, Psalm 13, and, and David is in the midst of everything that's going on between Saul and David, as David has been anointed king and the, the kingship has been removed from Saul and Saul's not happy about that and he's literally like chasing David around a mountain and wants to kill him. And David in Psalm 13 cries out to the Lord, how long, O oh God, will you forget me forever? The cross, on, on this side of the cross for the follower of Jesus, the cross is God screaming through time and space and through the universe I will not forget you. I have not forgotten you. I will not forget you forever. See how I have moved toward you in covenant faithfulness. I came myself in the flesh, bore your sin, took the wrath of that upon myself on the cross, rose from the dead, and now I am present with you, and I could not forget you if I wanted to. I have remembered And I always will remember, brother or sister in Christ, he does not forget you. My wife and I, um, I've, I've talked about this at various points, but for like a decade now, my wife and I, uh, have wanted to have children. So we got married 14 years ago. We kind of said when we got married in three to five years, we'll have kids, and three to five years came and went, and no kids. Six years, seven years, eight years, nine years, 13 years, 14 years, sort of roll over on the calendar, no children. And whatever kind of the, the like long waiting season or painful season is in your life, you get to these places where you're, you're like David in Psalm 13 and you're like screaming out to heaven, how long, oh Lord, will you just, are you going to forget me forever? And the answer is no. The answer is that he has not forgotten you and he will not forget you. The challenge is that from our position here on earth, we think that we know with absolute certainty what would be best in our life. And for God to remember us would be to give us the thing that we're absolutely certain would be best for us. And so we say, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And the cross says, I will never forget you. And we say from our human side, well, if you weren't forgetting me, we'd have a child by now. We'd fill in the blank but obviously you're forgetting. Think about Noah in the boat. Like when we worked through all of this, you get all these time distinctions. If you just go through and you add it all up, they're on the boat for about a year, give or take. Consider the flood and its purpose. Within hours, it had fulfilled its purpose. Like at the longest days, it's fulfilled its purpose and then it continues raining for 40 days and then they're on the boat for 150 days and they come to rest on Mount Ararat and then they're on the boat for like 150 more days while things dry out and then they start sending birds out to try to figure out how dry it is. At some point, don't you think Noah thought, you could get us off the boat now? 
like Noah's son's wives have had enough in-law time on the boat to cover them for the remainder of their marriages. Can we get off the boat, please? God remembers. And the chain of actions that take place in the rest of Genesis chapter 8 are the visible depiction of God's actively remembering Noah, but it doesn't move exactly like Noah would want it to. It moves according to God's plan, which means from my perspective, though I might think I know exactly what it needs to look like for God to remember me right now. God says, no, Tim, I know exactly what is best for you and your soul in light of eternity and inside of my sovereign will and plan for all of humanity. I'm not gonna forget you. I won't. And that doesn't mean that the thing that you're waiting for gets delivered to you on a silver platter. It means that God in his gracious kindness hasn't forgotten you at the cross and he will not forget you. And when you stand before him at the end of all things, all of the pain of life in a broken world will be made absolutely right as he remembers you with perfect faithfulness for all of eternity. God remembers his people, and he acts in covenant faithfulness to advance his purposes. That's who he is. And so in the second half of verse one there, and then all the way through verse 19, God acts in covenant faithfulness to advance his purposes. What's God need to do in this instance in order to advance? He's gotta get Noah off the boat. I said we were going to repopulate the world. In order to do that, we've got to get you off the boat. And so what does it say? Right after God remembered, God caused. He starts to act. And we're told that he causes this wind to blow. Now, if you were here last week or you listened to it online afterward, we said that what's happening in Genesis chapter 7 is like taking things back to the state they were in in Genesis 1, where darkness cover, our water covers the surface of the earth. It's like dark and chaotic, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters. And then out of that, God's creative activity happens. Here, water's covering the earth. It's probably dark and chaotic. And then we're told that God caused a wind the word for wind here is the word ruah. The word for spirit back in Genesis 1 verse 2 is ruah. That's the case all throughout the Old Testament. Ruah can be translated wind or it can be translated spirit. It's the job of the translator to use the context to figure out which English word we end up using for that. But if you were reading in Hebrew in Genesis 1 verse 2, you would see God's ruah hovering over the spirit of the waters. And then in Genesis 8 verse 1, you would see that God caused a ruah to blow over the surface of the waters. And in both instances, what is he gonna do? He's gonna bring land forth in this creative act. That's what's happening here. There's another powerful moment in scripture that has this same image. Remember we said that the way that the book of Genesis was kind of delivered in written form to the Israelite people was that they're gathered at Mount Sinai there after fleeing from Egypt and Moses is up on the mountain. He comes down and he's got Genesis, Exodus, like Leviticus, the law. In Exodus chapter 14, we're told that Moses and Israel arrive at the bank of the Red Sea and they've got Pharaoh's army chasing after them. Moses pleads with God to rescue them and God responds by saying, lift up your hand toward the sea and I will part it so that you can cross on dry land. I'll harden Pharaoh's heart so that his army follows in behind you and then gets swallowed in the sea. 
So then there's this moment where the presence of the Lord, who's this like pillar of cloud and fire, circles around behind Israel. And we're told that it throws Pharaoh's army into confusion. And then Moses steps up to the bank of the Red Sea. He stretches out his hands. And then we're told the Lord drove back the sea with a powerful east, Ruah, a wind. So Israel gathered at Mount Sinai has that fresh in mind. And they get the book of Genesis and they're told that the spirit of God, the Ruah of God was hovering over the waters and did this creative act. And then there was the flood and God caused a Ruah to come and remove the water. All of that tied together there. They would have known exactly what Moses, author of Genesis, was getting at in this. And then we're told that the sources of the watery depths, verse 2, and the floodgates of the sky were closed. It's, God's act, it's not that like the atmosphere runs out of moisture, the humidity drops, and there's no more rain. It's that God shuts off the water. No more. He acts. It's active remembering. And then in verse 4, the ark came to rest in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat. You may or may not remember this. I do not expect you to remember everything that's said in 40-minute sermons week after week after week after week after week of your life. But back in Genesis 2.15, we talked about God forming Adam, planting a garden, and then he places Adam in the garden. The word for place there was rest. He rests Adam in the garden. like This place where God rules and reigns and his spirit dwells, Adam is placed inside the garden to just rest and enjoy the presence of the Lord. In Genesis chapter five, Ben talked about what Lamech in the line of Seth says about Noah, that this will be the one who brings us relief or rest from the agonizing labor of our hands. Sin as a reality in the world has made it so that thorns and thistles are what spring up from the land. And Lamech says, it's gonna be Noah that brings us rest Relief. There are a bunch of different words for rest throughout uh, Genesis, like the first nine chapters. But here, when the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat, the word is nuach. Noah's name is Noach. Play on words happening there. It sounds very similar. One commentator said it would be fair to say that the ark came to Noah on the mountains of Ararat. It Noahed there in the mountaintops. The picture is God doing this recreating work and now Noah is going to come out of the ark like this new Adam figure. Sin has been judged. It's been wiped off the face of the planet. Noah emerges from the ark with all of the animals and rests in this world that God has created. And that sounds all well and good, except for we'll see in just a minute that there's one significant problem. So all that is taking place and God is drying out things. Noah from the inside of the ark starts to test out like, well, how dry is it? And so he's like, starts sending out birds. He sends out a raven and it just flies back and forth. And that raven's like, I'm not coming back inside the boat, man. I will just flap until I die out here if that's what has to happen. Then he starts sending out doves in seven-day increments. And the first one goes out and just comes right back. A week later, he sends out another one and it brings back an olive branch. And everybody inside the ark has got to be thinking, we're getting closer. And then he sends out a third one week later and it doesn't return. And everybody in the ark has got to be thinking, jackpot, pack it up, 
Let's get out of here. And then, remarkably, they stay inside. They wait. Why? It's like Noah understands. God ushered us in here and shut us in. We talked about that last week. And he will invite us back out. We're not going to go before he tells us to. God is acting in all of this, like recreating this world. And they're coming to rest in this place. And Noah says, everybody slow down. We're staying in here a little bit longer. God shut us in. He'll bring us out. And then in verse verse 15, it happens. God speaks to Noah. Come out of the ark. You, your wife, your sons and your sons' wives. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you. Birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth. And they will spread over the earth. And here's our last call back to Genesis chapters one and two, and be fruitful and multiply. Noah and, and his whole family are going to get that command in chapter nine. You get it for the first time here that this is what the animals are going to do. And it's like the author of Genesis, Moses, has like tied up everything as if to say, see how this is supposed to look? Noah's gonna come out of here. We've recreated the whole place. God has judged sin and everything is going to be fixed. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings. Here's the problem. Even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward, and I will never strike down every living thing as I have done, There's one large problem as Noah comes out of the ark and it's that all the animals come out with him but so too does all of humanity sin. Sin has been judged in the world but it has not been like removed from the human heart. And so as Noah comes out as this new Adam figure, Noah comes out with all of Adam's sin. And it's the exact same phrase that was used back in Genesis chapter six, that every inclination of the human heart is only evil all the time in Genesis chapter six. Now in Genesis chapter eight, it is evil from youth onward. All of Adam's sin comes out of the boat with Noah. And the phrase here in Genesis eight is like notoriously difficult to translate. And so the CSB tries to smooth it out. Even though... Like God will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. You're, you're looking down at maybe a different translation. It might say for the inclination, imagination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. The most literal translation in yours might say is God will never curse the ground again because of human beings because the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. What in the world is going on there? Back in Genesis chapter six, God said that he was gonna flood the whole earth because he was deeply grieved by human sin and every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. Now God says, I will never do this again because every inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. What in, like one time you flooded it because of the sin, now you're saying you won't flood it because of the sin. What in the world is going on? Genesis has us looking forward for this this serpent crusher. Genesis 3.15, 
One is going to come who will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent will strike his heel. He will crush the serpent's head. And we're just waiting for that person. And it wasn't Cain or Abel. Maybe it's Noah. Lamech says Noah's going to give us relief. Here's this flood. It seems like God is recreating the world. And now out comes Noah. And the serpent has not been crushed. Why? Because Noah comes out with all of humanity's sin. Like the flood was just judgment, but it didn't solve the problem. So God says, I won't flood this again because we're going to need something greater. Like if Genesis 8 had solved the problem, then the Bible would be over on page 10 right there. But you got all this back behind it. Why? Because all of this is what is going to be necessary in order for the one to come who will crush the head of the serpent. And so you're reading along in Genesis and at all of these key moments you think, if you were reading it for the first time and you had no context, you would say, ah, this is the one. It's going to be Cain or Abel. Nope. Oh, it's going to be Noah. This looks really hopeful. Nope. Abraham. Nope. Isaac. Nope. Jacob. Nope. Joseph. Nope. Moses. Nope. All of these kings. Nope, 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 nope. God is going to have to come himself. And crushing the head of the serpent will require that God be crushed on the cross. And you've got all this Bible back there because God in his covenant faithfulness in our minds seems like it takes him a long time to get to there. But what does Galatians 4 remind us of? Nah, in the fullness of time, at just the right time, God sent his son. He acted in his covenant faithfulness. And in the middle of all of that, Noah comes out of the boat and we're told that he worships. Noah responds to God's faithfulness with worship. He builds an altar, first use of the word altar in the Bible. And he takes all of those clean animal pairs that he brought on to the boat and he starts to sacrifice them, to offer them on the altar. And it's such a perfect picture of all of the Old Testament, but also what life is like as followers of Jesus, where like all of our sin is in there and it's yucky and all of our attempts at like, right response to the Lord are also in there. And so in the middle of every inclination of the heart being evil from youth onward is also this desire to worship. And it's just like smashed in there together. And in the Old Testament, that's the case. Experientially, as followers of Jesus, that's the case. He offers this burnt offering there. And we're told that the aroma is acceptable or pleasing to the Lord. And then God says, I will never again curse the ground because of humanity, because every inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. I simply want to offer this this morning. We would do well to develop similar instincts to Noah here. Noah on the boat sees what's happening around and probably understands that like I don't deserve to be in the boat while all this is happening outside the boat and then God like ushers him off and what does he do right away? Builds an altar to worship. Like I have seen God's faithfulness not just to me but to humanity and the first thing he does, I'm gonna build an altar and worship here and we would do well to develop similar knee-jerk reactions and instincts to the faithfulness of God in our lives. We worship. We praise Him. It doesn't look like building little altars and 
going out in the woods and finding some animals to burn on there. The Bible says that worship on this side of the cross is an all-of-life response. You offer the whole of yourself to the Lord. We think of worship as like 15 minutes of songs, and we sing a little bit. We come in here on Sunday mornings and we remind ourselves of God's covenant faithfulness, that he's remembered his people in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And he will never forget his people. And our instinct ought to be lives of worship. Worship, worship, worship. It just flows out of who we are. And then we see the faithfulness of the Lord to us in daily life and we worship, that's it. We don't just kind of collect God's faithfulness and his goodness to us and say, thank you, God, I will just move along in my happiness now because you remembered me the way that I wanted you to or you acted for me in the way that I wanted to or you did this thing that was unexpected. Cool, thanks, and now I will just move right along. No, you worship. God remembers his people in acts and covenant faithfulness. You get reminded of that in the cross, like you're just reading scripture one day or you come into the church and we're worshiping together and we're seeing God's goodness to us in the person of Jesus and our knee-jerk, instinctual response is I will worship. And the same thing happens day in and day out in life. And so if you just sort of take like all of Genesis chapter eight here, when God acts in covenant faithfulness, his people respond in worship. When God acts in covenant faithfulness, his people respond in worship. And so we're not gonna overcomplicate this this morning. We are just going to apply in real time together. We're just gonna worship. And it's gonna look like singing. That's one aspect of worship. We're gonna join together celebrating God's covenant activity, his covenant faithfulness to his people in the work of Jesus Christ, and we're just going to worship him. And so if you would stand, I'm going to pray for us, and then we will move into a time of worship. God, thank you for the son. God, thank you for your faithfulness to us in Christ. Lord, would you help us to cling to the reality that you have not and you will not forget us. God, would you create within us hearts that worship passionately, not just in song in church services, that worship passionately throughout our lives as responses to your faithfulness to us in Jesus. God, would our worship be a pleasing aroma to you this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.